0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy, ramp.com slash easy, ramp.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of IC terms and conditions apply.
1: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has dominated headlines and prompted several U.S. politicians, many of whom did not demonstrate any interest in this country before pressure President Biden to take stronger and stronger action. But the crisis is also highlighting how race and ethnicity changes the response to war and the refugees struggling to escape it.
2: It was interesting watching reporters who were bending over backwards to help their viewers understand that
1: there was really something different about this moment in Europe. More on the stakes in the Ukrainian crisis coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It has been more than a generation since most Americans viewed Russia as an existential threat. But since Russian President Vladimir Putin launched an invasion of neighboring Ukraine, the U.S. and much of Europe has seen Cold War era tensions and fears of global war come roaring back. Here in the U.S., the conflict has many leaders and citizens asking what more we should do for Ukraine and others asking whether or not this is our fight at all. Joining us for more perspective is Patrick Gaspard. He's a former ambassador to South Africa and the current president and chief executive officer of the Center for American Progress. Ambassador, welcome to a word. Jason, thank you so very much for having me on your fantastic show. On Sunday, you tweeted this. There are no heroes in war. History and poetry are liars. Some who take up arms to strike back, some who gather and run to borders, all without choice, as the heel crushes what inspired you to share
2: that you know I, I was watching the coverage of the tragic circumstances in ukraine comparing the coverage that i was watching uh, of this challenge to the coverage that we've seen in places like afghanistan uh, syria uh etc but afghanistan in particular with the recent um uh, u.s pullout and the way journalists american journalists described uh, Afghanis in that moment, talked about people who weren't standing and fighting as the Taliban took over their country, described them in very unheroic terms, despite the fact that they've been involved in a 20 year clash uh, to preserve their democratic spaces, to protect spaces for women and girls to learn and to advance. Uh, and I contrasted that with the kind of coverage that I've been seeing uh, out of the Ukraine, which is entirely not just glowing, but there's a hagiography uh, that begins to develop about who these people are versus people in other conflict zones. Uh, and there's a suggestion in it almost at the subtext as well. These are folks that are worth standing up for uh, as opposed to those who are fleeing from other spaces, whereas, you know, you and I know, of course, that there are millions of ukrainians who have already left their country and they had no choice in what they were doing because right. they were under the same kind of siege that syrians were under previously that afghanis afghanis were under but they're described differently and received differently that is not a suggestion uh, at all jason that uh, that they should not be received warmly that is not a suggestion Uh, that uh, one should be critical of those who pick up arms to defend their nation. Uh, But I just think that uh, there are lenses that we put on these uh, spaces that reduce the humanity of some and over elevate the status uh, of others.
1: It's one thing for Americans and the American press and some American politicians to basically say, Oh, look at this country of relatively white people that look like our neighbors, quote unquote, what a tragedy this is. And sort of dismiss and, and, and dehumanize Afghanistan and Syria and Yemen and Haiti. But what's been fascinating to me is to see similar attitudes in European countries, many of whom are very hostile to refugees Even other white refugees. I mean, you know, if you look at what was happening in the Balkans, there wasn't necessarily open arms for people fleeing Yugoslavia. were not necessarily open arms for people fleeing Serbia. But for some reason, there seems to be that attitude now, even in certain countries that in the past weren't so open. Why do you think that attitude has changed within Europe? Lots of factors at play there. You know, one, one thing I will say about
2: Poland's response, and Poland is really the most interesting one to look at because... The leadership in Poland has been hostile to refugees, to amnesty uh, seekers, uh, has used rhetoric about terrorists and people who aren't like us. You know, there are definitely cultural bonds between Ukrainians and the Polish that's, you know, altogether different uh, than the relationships (coughs) that they have with with others uh, in 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 Europe. And of course, there's uh, the response to hostility. That's not civil war, but is the uh, antagonism of a superpower like Russia against a much smaller state. Uh, And clearly, if you look at Poland in particular, and Hungary, long history of Soviet uh, hostilities, Russian uh, antagonism, that one can appreciate why they would respond differently to uh, refugees who were fleeing the might of the Russian state. That being said, Jason really interesting to listen keenly and closely to the rhetoric from leaders like Viktor Orban uh, in Hungary or Kaczynski in Poland who go out of their way to say things like, well, these are not like the refugees we've seen before. These are educated right. people. These are people who are contributing to society. And that's why we're able to receive them, which you know begs uh, a question about how they view the humanity, the significance, the uh, the importance of human beings uh, from Syria, Afghanistan, et cetera, who don't look like them, who don't speak their language, but who are fleeing similarly difficult circumstances. Uh, I think it's very interesting to listen to the rhetoric uh, in the U.S. Uh, from our Congress, uh, from uh, our media. To go back to the question of uh, who's who, who is heroic and who is not, uh, Jason. <clears throat> You know, I appreciate the reception that the the leader of Ukraine, Zelensky, has received from uh, our Congress. Uh, It is right and good that we rally to the support of Ukrainians. But that stands in certainly stark contrast to the treatment of others. You mentioned uh, Haitians before. Wasn't that many months ago that I found myself uh, at the border of uh, at the Del Rio border uh, in Texas. Where, Mm -hmm. of course, we saw uh, Haitian migrants uh, and amnesty seekers being uh, receiving the most horrific uh, reception from our border patrol who were on horses, Mm. who were lashing uh, out on them with the reins of those horses. We saw COVID being used by this country uh, as a way to uh, deny legitimate. Uh, amnesty processes to to those who are fleeing dire, dire circumstances in Haiti where a president has been assassinated, where there's a political mafia state uh, violence uh, in the streets uh, that make even our uh, embassy staffers uh, feel unsafe and need to be protected. So real contrast in how we talk about uh, these spaces and our own sphere of influence here and how we receive uh, these folks.
1: We're going to take a short break. we come back, more on Ukraine. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Patrick Gaspard of the Center for American Progress about Ukraine. We have these stories about African students not being able to flee and they're being stopped at the border or they get out of Ukraine and they go to Poland or they try to go to Slovakia. They try to go to these other countries and they're told you can't come in. Is this something that the United States is trying to address as we consider sending more arms to the Ukraine? Is this something that European countries are trying to address or has the sort of mistreatment of black refugees during this crisis been overlooked in favor of, you know, praise of the, the bravery of the Ukrainian people?
2: I'd say this. I, I, I think that um, uh, it's been clearly expressed by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, by Vice President Kamala Harris by uh, our NSC, by our United Nations representative, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, clear expressions of concern uh, and support for those who are studying, who are working in the Ukraine, who are from the global south, uh, and the images that we've seen of how they're being being treated. So expressions of concerns, questions have been asked about uh, that treatment, uh, and there have been attempts made to extend support to those fleeing students and those fleeing workers. Uh, So that is definitely the case. Though I will say, Jason, that uh, the United States as a consequence of decisions that were made by the Trump uh, administration, uh, really currently is receiving abysmally low numbers of political refugees into the US. And there's a stark contrast to the numbers that are being received uh, and uh, transmitted through uh, Europe now. Uh, our refugee system, our amnesty system was completely upended by the Trump administration. Uh, and it's taking some time to really put it back uh, together again. I'm going to pull back a little further on your question about the U.S. response, Jason, just to point out that I think that the the kind of all of agency response that we've seen from the Biden administration is absolutely uh, commendable and stands in stark contrast to the the bromance uh, that we saw between uh donald trump uh, and president putin uh this administration sounded early alarms ra- uh, rallied uh, allies uh in europe to help strengthen both the eu and nato through this crisis uh, and have really dropped a curtain of sanctions uh, on russia uh, the likes of which we have not seen before uh, and in a very short time they managed to isolate putin Uh, and turned Russia into a pariah state. Uh, And that needs to be contrasted uh, by your listeners, Jason, uh, to the kind of uh, applause that we've seen in some conservative circles, uh, certainly on Fox News, uh, and from those who uh, continue to prop up Donald Trump, uh, contrast that with how they have celebrated uh, Vladimir Putin uh, they have lifted up what they consider to be his strength versus the weaknesses of democratic leaders uh, in this country. Uh, and everyone should recall, of course, that Trump's campaign guru was Paul Manafort, a man who worked right. for the pro-Russian president of Ukraine uh, and altered the platform of the Republican National Convention in order to support, in order to deny uh, security support to the Ukraine Uh, And that Donald Trump's very impeachment uh, was about Mm -hmm. how he denied uh, support to Zelensky in an attempt uh, to compel him to use his very offices to support Trump's campaign against Joe Biden. We cannot forget that ever uh, in how we think about the current U.S. response uh, versus what the likely response would have been for Trump, even as you and I unpack the important questions of refugee Status uh, and the distinctions that are being made uh, between ukrainians uh, fleeing uh, warfare uh, And those uh, from the global south who have been treated radically differently.
1: I want to go back to this idea of how The last I guess three administrations have dealt with ukraine when you were in the obama administration uh, You were there in the 2014 sort of revolution where the pro-Russian leadership was removed from Ukraine. You were also there when the Russians invaded and sort of advanced and took hold of the Crimea. Looking back on what your experiences were in the administration, do you think we could have predicted what was happening now? Was this sort of inevitable regardless of who was in office? Or do you think there's something unique about the years under Trump and these first year under Biden that has made Vladimir Putin more aggressive?
2: Uh, You're right, of course, that uh, it was during the Obama administration that we saw a change of leadership uh, in the Ukraine. I want to be really careful in how we talk about that, because we should all understand that that was um, a regime change that was spurred by the Ukrainian people themselves, who were marching Mm -hmm. in the streets, who were demonstrating, uh, and basically made the space ungovernable because they had leadership uh, that curried favor with Russia that just did the bidding uh, of Vladimir Putin uh, and they refused to be governed under those terms. Uh, You are also right in uh, your assessment of what happened in Crimea during the Obama administration. I think you're right to ask the question about whether or not uh, all of this was uh, inevitable. I, I would say this. If you've paid any attention to Vladimir Putin over the course of the last 14 years, Uh, You realize that both in his public pronouncements and uh, in how he has deployed uh, Russia's uh, military in an open way and uh, under uh, disguise as well, uh, it's been very clear that he's had designs uh, on this territory for some time. Uh, I believe that the efforts that Russia made successful, I would say successful efforts to intervene in the 2016 election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was Mm -hmm. absolutely uh, connected uh, to uh, his future uh, aspirations around uh, this geography. uh, And that the Mm -hmm. defeat uh, of Donald Trump uh, in the last election uh, made it clear to him that he no longer had an ally in the Oval Office in the United States. uh, And if he was going to destabilize Europe, destabilize NATO, he would uh in his vision uh, have to seize this land directly because he no longer had a president in the white house who would just cede it to him
1: i want to ask about this before we sort of turn into domestic politics one of the criticisms that you hear we have the the far right who have said oh you know the, the tucker carlson's galinsky is terrible and and they're so bad and they've got you know nazis But what I've also been experiencing and have seen a lot of is the sort of the American anti-imperialist far left, who make this argument that essentially Russia was baited into this war, that the United States was going to somehow put Ukraine into NATO, and that Russia had no choice. When you hear those kinds of arguments from the far left in the United States, what is your response to that? What is your response to this idea? That Russia had no choice and that America is really the bad guy in this sort of Ukrainian invasion.
2: It's it's nonsensical. It's actually rather tragic. It's poor assessment, little understanding uh, of uh, the history uh, of the region. Uh, but it's not just the far left in the United States who are guilty of this. Look at, you know, the, um, and I say this with, with real profound respect for its leadership, but I think that arguments like this are also made by leadership in Uh, non-aligned countries like South Africa, where I had the greatest honor to to serve. South Africa has a special relationship uh, with Russia, uh, given the support that it received from Russia during the apartheid uh, period. Um, However, uh, that relationship uh, should not uh, obscure the obligation that nations like South Africa... Uh, have to protect and promote democracy uh, and human rights around the world, both of which the Russians are in violation of. As far as the left in this country, I want to be I want to be clear about something, Jason. I am I am sympathetic to the, and I'm in solidarity with their instinct uh, of skepticism uh, to mm-hmm. look at these kinds of interventions uh, and and to listen to the war hawking that we're hearing from some. Uh, and to say wait a second here let's slow down we've had other moments where we've had false flag operations where we received information about weapons of mass destruction there is a history that the u.s has where the u.s has not respected uh sovereignty or uh rights however the notion that vladimir putin is in the ukraine now because he was baited by nato is just uh, is beyond nonsensical uh, Putin uh, has been making incursions into these spaces for some time and it's also been clear really clear Jason uh, that NATO has kept uh, the Ukraine at arm's length. they've had yeah. many opportunities to exactly. embrace Ukraine may, give grant Ukraine membership and they've been clear that they were not that that was not the trajectory they were not moving in that direction. so there's no reason whatsoever whatsoever to give justification. Uh, to this argument from uh, this dictator, violent, brutal dictator Vladimir Putin as it relates to to NATO. There's nothing in the history, there's nothing in the practical steps that were taken by NATO nations uh, towards Ukraine uh, that would be suggestive of this whatsoever.
1: We're going to take a short break. We come back more with former Ambassador Patrick Gaspard about U.S. policy in Ukraine. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned.
3: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
1: You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking with Ambassador Patrick Gaspard about the crisis in Ukraine. There's a lot happening in domestic politics in the United States. We're dealing with the COVID crisis. We're dealing with high gas prices. We're dealing with an ongoing uh, attempted insurrection being covered over by many Republicans in Congress. And this current crisis in Ukraine is putting pressure on Democratic leadership. Um, after the multibillion dollars COVID package failed in Congress – Um, A couple weeks ago, Speaker Nancy Pelosi had this exchange with reporter Jake Sherman at a press conference.
0: I just want to dig into that a little bit more on the COVID relief. This will be your third time. My third time, what, asked about COVID relief?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, it's it's
1: substantive. You like substantive questions. So I just want to make sure. Yeah,
3: well, people are dying in Ukraine and all of that. Yeah.
1: People are dying from COVID too. Do you think that the United States government has done a good job communicating to the american people i mean yes the polls have suggested that most people don't like what russia is doing but do you think the u.s government has done a good job communicating why we're trying to put together packages to help ukraine why this issue matters even as we have ongoing crises at home because you know during a midterm year if it appears as though the government is too distracted to take care of real concerns on the ground that could have dire consequences for the current administration
2: i'm often critical of um poor narrative, poor storytelling, poor communications on a number of fronts. I think that uh, there's been a struggle to communicate the essence, for instance, of the Build Back Better bill, which led to right. uh, its failure. But I'm going to give the Biden administration lots of credit here, Jason. I think if you look at the, uh, the support that this administration uh, is receiving from uh, not just Democrats, but from independents, from Republicans as well, for the defense of democracy, defense of the people of Ukraine. There's overwhelming uh, support. And that comes out of the president kind of freezing us all in the moment, hitting the pause button on all of the other crises that, that all of us are dealing with uh, in our lives uh, and, and, and helping us to kind of pull up to the fireside Uh, And to give us some context for what is occurring in the Ukraine, why it is uh, in keeping with the frame that he has laid up uh, from his campaign to now about autocracy versus democracy, why that has direct implications for our future uh, here in the U.S. He's connected this very clearly uh, to the kind of dependencies that we have on uh fossil fuel and all that we have to do to relieve ourselves of those dependencies in the future so that we're not dependent not just on russia uh but on other uh uh, other autocratic regimes uh, for crude oil Uh, i think that the president has also made it clear every step of the way here that the sanctions that we're imposing on russia are going to Um, have implications here uh, in the U.S. as it relates to the contribution that they make to overall uh, inflation. Uh, And he's asked Americans to be prepared to endure that a bit longer in order to uh, preserve and protect the rights of people to live freely who are being literally bombed out of their homes uh, by Russia. So I think that that the president has landed the context uh, and has uh, expanded the kind of scope of solidarity here uh, in this make or break moment, despite, uh, the fact that we have an entire network, uh, mm-hmm. in the, this country that continues to really shill, uh, for Vladimir, uh, Putin. It, it's reprehensible what's happening on, uh, that network. Uh, but, fortunately, uh, it seems as if, uh, the American people, uh, appreciate what's, at, what's really at stake.
1: So at the moment that this episode is airs, friday president biden will be in poland to talk with european allies about the next steps in ukraine if you were still in the white house if you were advising him what would you be telling him to say
2: well i think that the very first thing that um the president needs to do is to double down uh, on the very very strong work uh that i've already commended him for uh which is the work of creating a space for europe itself to lead uh in this uh challenge i think that the president Uh, Needs to reinforce uh, in Poland to European allies the the fact that uh, The US uh, has already uh, in this past week alone committed an additional 1 billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine reaching 2 billion since last January uh, That uh, our Congress passed a 13.6 billion dollar Ukraine supplemental uh, funding bill with billions of of assistance uh, despite resistance uh, from uh, some corners Uh, And that Europe itself uh, needs to continue to press the case by maintaining maximum uh, military pressure uh, uh, on uh, on, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, and Russia through uh, it's uh, military uh, assistance to the Ukraine. There's lots of con- it seems as if every member of Congress here uh, and every uh, news correspondent has suddenly become an expert uh, in in uh, in weaponry. Everyone's calling for mm-hmm. megs and missile to air defense. Uh, I think that uh, the Ukrainians have demonstrated that the material that they've received from the U.S. and from European European leadership has been sufficient to slow down and thwart the Russian uh, advance uh, it's very clear that uh, Russia is not going to be able to just kind of march into uh, Kiev the way that they had anticipated. So right. uh, President Biden has to uh, rally, uh, continue to rally uh, European allies to um, uh, moving uh, support, uh, direct military support to Ukrainians. But then beyond that, Jason, I think it's really important that they step up to the le- less next level of uh, sanctions, tough sanctions regime. If you look at what's happened uh, in London, uh, it's really kind of astonishing to see how uh, London uh, has become a money laundering center uh, for uh, for autocrats. It's really an astonishing thing. And uh, there are measures that Boris Johnson uh, could take that other Europeans could could take that would continue to choke off uh, resources Uh, to those who support uh, Putin's war uh, in a way uh, that could further isolate uh, Putin's leadership and increase the likelihood uh, that the oligarchs in his country pressure him to negotiate, to pull out, uh, to resolve uh, this crisis with the Ukraine.
1: You are a big comic book fan. When we look at the Ukrainian crisis in the fairest, most comic booky way possible, are there clear good guys and bad guys are there heroes and supervillains in this conflict that we could all understand
2: you know the the good guys and gals are the people who through with without any provocation whatsoever uh have had their lives upended by the russian state and by vladimir putin's ambitions we have innocent innocent men women children who went to bed one night with the same kinds of dreams and ambitions that you and I have for our families, for our communities, for uh, our children, uh, and woke up uh, to a nightmare where their homes no longer existed, uh, where they had no access to fundamentals, electricity, running water, the ability to feed uh, their families, and instead had to gather up all of Whatever they could of their worldly possessions and of their families, uh, and either flee to borders, and in some cases, not just flee to borders, but to abandon their families and return uh, to take up arms uh, against those who, unprovoked, unprovoked, have violated uh, norms uh, uh, and, uh, and and basic standards of uh, humanity. Uh, those are the good guys and gals of this uh, comic book story, if you will, uh, Jason, uh, and those who rally to their defense, uh, rally uh, to the notion uh, that uh, one should not be able to violate sovereignty like this, shouldn't be able to violate um, democratic spaces in this, in this violent way. Um, You know, those are, those are some of the good guys and gals uh, as well. And the villain clearly here uh, is Vladimir Putin and those uh, who support uh, Vladimir Putin's um, violence, his uh, his excursion into the Ukraine, his grand designs uh, for the world uh, and those who uh, every day lift up illiberal uh, autocratic practice uh, as if that should be the norm
1: for all of us. Patrick Gaspard is the former U.S. ambassador to South Africa and the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. Thank you so much for joining me today on a word. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate you. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word